Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming to the last class. As promised, today we will be talking about the culmination of the covenants. That is, of course, the new covenant. Before we begin, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for all of our blessings, for strength and life and health. We pray for uh, your spirit to enable us to understand your word. May we grow by it. May we plumb the depths of the wisdom that is contained within it. And may we grow in the image of Christ more and more today. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So, the New Covenant. Now, there was a very good question asked last week by Heidi regarding, does God change his mind? Yes. And it actually uh, segues very nicely into the whole discussion. So, I'm going to spend some time answering that question, and then that will feed right into our overall topic. Uh, does God change his mind? This is perhaps one of the most difficult um, like philosophical questions that Christians are asked. Uh, and it's uh, a lot of times it's phrased in the question of, do our prayers actually avail anything? Right? Do our, our prayers actually change things? And, and what, of course, is meant by that is, do they actually change the mind of God? Do they actually change God's decision-making process? And we would say, philosophically, and from a, from a pure you know, theological standpoint, no. We would affirm that God is immutable, that God is omniscient. So, because he's unchanging, and he's all-knowing, he knows what we're going to pray, and therefore, our prayers, as well as his response, are foreordained. So, do our prayers avail anything? The answer is yes, they actually do avail something, in the sense that they are a part of God's sovereign will. So, this is why the Bible can say things like, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Because the idea is that those prayers are part of God's sovereign will. Therefore, you are praying according to God's will. The righteous man is praying according to God's will. And when those prayers are answered, God has used those prayers, if you will. They are, uh, in, a, in a way, the vehicle or the mechanism through which God acts. Um, another simple way of putting this, and I've looked at it this way, that in, in the idea of um, fatalism, and that all things are just rote, that God's sovereign will is unchanging. Uh, you, could, you could rightly ask the question, well, why does it really matter what I do then? And the answer is, the biblical answer is, the, the clay cannot say to the potter, why have you made me this way? So the biblical answer is no, and that it just leaves it at that. But I think uh, an interesting way to look at it is, you can actually um, have assurance and know that you are indeed in the family of God based on your response to that question. Should I just do whatever I want? 
if your response is, okay, yeah, I guess, how can God judge me if everything is according to his will? If everything that passes is foreordained by God, how can he possibly judge me? If your response to that is, all right, I'll just go on sinning, then you are probably not of the kingdom. But if your response of that, to that question is, as Paul said, by no means, that's a good indicator that you are, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are united with Christ, that you are being renewed. So, in a strange way, your response to the sovereignty of God is a good indicator of your place in His kingdom. Does that make sense? So, in other words, and we can we can say the same thing about prayer. I struggle with this personally. Being a philosopher, I ask those questions all the time. If God knows what I'm going to pray, what's the point of praying? I'll just get out of the way and not pray. He knows my heart. Well, the, the Bible tells us that that in itself is a type of response, very much like the person who's saying, well, how can God judge me if everything is foreordained? It's the, it's the improper response. The proper response is to pray, and to pray all the more, knowing that indeed your prayers have been foreordained. Mysteriously enough, your prayers, the very prayers that you pray, are themselves a part of God's plan. They are a part of God's will. Um, so that is a great assurance to us and a great hope for us because we know that anytime we do pray and we pray from a point of faithfulness, we're not praying from ingratitude or praying from impatience or these types of uh, uh, sinful characteristics, but we're praying from faith and hope and, and, and trust in God, then we can know for certain that we are praying according to the Spirit, according to God's will. And those prayers are as effective as God's will is, which is, they cannot be stopped, right? So, um, that's to answer the question in short, but there are a few passages in Scripture that tell us, in fact, no, God does not change his mind. So the first, which is actually in Samuel, Samuel is a bit of a, a paradox, because 1 Samuel is where we hear a couple instances of God regretting and God seeming to change his mind. And yet, in the middle of 1 Samuel, it says this, uh, And the glory of Israel, that is Yahweh, will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that should have regret. So there, in the middle of the text, Samuel writes, God is not a man that is one who regrets things. So in some sense, we're told that he does have grief and regret over his sovereign will somehow, and yet at the same time we're told, no, he's not a man, so he doesn't regret in the same way that men do. So this begs the question of what's going on here, and we have talked a little bit about um, the metaphors of God, so God as, say, a metal worker, or God as a host, or God as a shepherd, God as a king. Those are what we would call theomorphism, that is, we have offices on, on this earth, offices that we fill, activities that we do, that are extensions of God's character. So the office of king is a reflection of Christ as the ultimate king. And we would say that it's a theomorphism, that is, man is being formed in the likeness of God when he operates as God does. So a king 
is operating in the light when he's operating properly as a king should. He's reflecting the glory of God. Now, the flip side of that is anthropomorphism. And that is where we take human characteristics and we apply them to God. And primarily in this instance, when we're talking about God changing his mind or God having feelings or God even partaking, so God eating, uh, stretching out his hand, walking, treading the earth, these types of images are anthropomorphisms. Because the idea is, exactly as Samuel says here, God is not a man. That is, Yahweh is not a man like Moses was or Aaron was. So he does not have feet. He does not have hands like men have hands. Now, we are made in his image, but you can see how there's the offices and the character of God that then reflect that are then reflected in the offices of man. And then there are characteristics of man that then are extended back to God to help us understand his activity, to understand his will. So, in this instance, what the authors are doing is they're saying God's grief, particularly over Saul, of making Saul king, God's sovereign will is grieved over the fact that Saul is in the place of the king. Now, there's only one way for us to understand that as humans, and that is to understand it in the way we understand grief and regret. So there would be no other way to communicate that notion of grief and regret on God's behalf other than uh, phrasing it through our lens. But we can rest assured that in God's sovereign will, in his immutable power, in his unchangingness, in his omniscience, he, he is not in fact grieved or regretting as we are. Does that make sense? And that, that elicits a whole discussion about, again, the character of God, his immutability, his omniscience. Those are really the questions then that answer, does God change his mind? Do our prayers change God's mind? Do they actually affect things? You have to go back to those fundamental questions of, is God unchanging? Is God all-powerful? Is he all-knowing? Those questions answer. So, very good. Now, that... As I said, it actually fits very well into the whole class because what we have been looking at is the history of the covenants. And it's very easy to look at the covenants now, being in the new covenant, and we can see the, the logical progression from Adam to Noah to Abraham to David and so on. And what we have is a continuity of imagery continuity of typology and that is another uh, important note when you're studying scripture you want to look for this is a good Bible study tool you want to look for continuity that is where is the uh, what are the common themes throughout the passage and where do, the, where do these themes pop up other places in scripture and if you're coming to a theme or a conclusion that doesn't seem to have any continuity, that you can't find in other places in Scripture, that's usually a pretty good indicator that you're probably straying off a little bit. That's kind of like that idea of the rule of faith that we as Christians now look back throughout history and we use the rule of church history that as like a ruler to guide us. So if we come up with a conclusion 
if Mike or some theologian comes up with a conclusion that's brand new to Christendom, well then we would, we would really want to examine that carefully. But if we come to a conclusion that yes, has already been come to by Anselm or Augustine or Aquinas or any of these church figures or has been held by the church in one of the creeds, then we can know we are on, on safe ground. Um, so all that to being said, God's sovereign will has continuity. So the covenants have continuity, therefore God's sovereign will, because he's the one who's building his kingdom, has continuity. <clears throat> so in other words, the new covenant, the distinctions that are found in the new covenant, compared to the old covenant, those were the plan all along. So we don't want to come to the new covenant and see all of its differences and its now new nuances and think somehow God was just like, all right, he threw out the old playbook and he's just trying something brand new. We don't want to think about it in that regard, that there was an old playbook and now there's a new playbook and the old playbook was, and clearly didn't work, so we'll just go on to this new program. That's not what's happening. It's not the, he's not the uh, disgruntled coach, so to speak. So the new covenant was the plan all along. And of course, uh, going back to our first couple classes, we learned that, or we, we articulated, that the covenant, you remember what we call the covenant? It's a, uh, in regard to the kingdom, we used a, a term that we are familiar with as Christians. So the covenant is the constitution. So the covenant is the constitution of the kingdom. That is to say, it's the ruling, guiding law, principle. So if the covenant is the constitution of the kingdom, then in fact, now the new covenant is the Fulfillment or the rewriting of that constitution. That is how God relates to his chosen people. The way I'm using constitution here is how God is relating to his people. So how, in fact, is God relating to his people now in light of all that's already happened? Well, we've seen throughout the Old Testament that the goal is restoration of so the goal is getting back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve sinned. They were expelled from the garden. Being expelled, expelled from the garden is an image of being expelled from God's presence. So the, the garden, returning to the garden, is returning to God's presence, returning to a right relationship with God. So that is the goal of all the old covenants or rather the atonement in the Old Covenant. How can we get back to the, the garden? How can we enter again into God's presence? What we saw is that God is the one who always establishes these covenants. So he is the one that draws man back to himself, not the other way around. And this, incidentally, is what makes Christianity, and consequently Judaism before, unique among all other sort of religious worldviews. And that is 
the direction of pursuit. So God, under our understanding of, of Scripture, God is the one who pursues Israel. And now Christ is the one, and the Holy Spirit are the ones who pursue us. So that direction, that is God pursues man, is utterly unique in the history of religions. If you study religions, there's no other religious system in which it's explicitly stated that there is a sovereign God, A, that there's any type of God like Yahweh, like the triune God, let alone that that God would actually actively pursue relationship with man. It's always the other way around. The gods are either indifferent or uh, malevolent, and man has to pursue or search for God. That is how this will be theologically correct. <clears throat> Man pursues God in all other religions. So that's an important distinction. The pursuit or the direction of pursuit. And we see that. Who makes the covenants? Who cuts the covenants in the Old Testament? It's always God making covenant with the patriarchs or with Israel or with Adam or with Noah. It's never the other way around. Now, there are instances in Scripture where individuals will make covenants with each other and in response to God making a covenant to a certain individual those individuals may then in turn make a covenant with God but there's never an instance in the Old Testament in which a, uh, an individual unprovokingly or unprovoked decides I'm going to call upon Yahweh to make a covenant with him it's always unidirectional in that God is pursuing him and that is because, obviously, we understand, God desires the atonement of his creation. He loved Adam and Eve when he created them. He wants to see them restored. He is not one that just wants to just cast off his creation and utterly destroy them. This is why uh, we read you know, those, those passages with Abraham, and that Abraham is, is pleading with God, or is it Lot? Sorry, Lot. Lot is pleading with God, don't destroy the city, lest there be even a few people who are righteous. This notion that God is merciful and gracious to his creation, he wants to see the restoration of the garden. He wants to see the atonement of man. Okay, so, God wants to see the restoration of Israel. He wants to see the restoration of the garden. Now, what we then see throughout the Old Testament is a series of figures, a series of leaders, who are types and shadows of this Messiah character. So once we come to Abraham, the, covenant of the, the Abrahamic covenant, we are introduced to this idea of a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, who will atone for the sins of Israel, offer them freedom, and these kind of uh, basically usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Now, Israel is full of characters who, in the narratives, are, are the hope is that these individuals will fit that mold, that they will actually fulfill 
the requirements of the law that they themselves will be the ones who will bring back the restoration of the garden. They are the ones who will, as is promised to Eve, crush the head of the serpent. So what we have in the Old Testament is a series of leaders and a series of, series of, of um, figures who are, the hope is that they are going to be the ones that crush the head of the serpent. They're the ones that defeat sin and death. But what we find in the Old Testament is, in fact, every single time one of these new figures comes up, they themselves are the ones who are crushed beneath sin. So you're looking forward to this one who will crush sin and death, who will defeat the serpent, yet time and time again, these figures fail, and they themselves are crushed, sometimes literally crushed, like, you know, Samson. Uh, these figures fall and are not able, they are not capable of fulfilling the law of God, fulfilling the, re the righteous requirements of the law, and satisfying God and restoring Israel back to mankind. That is the pattern. And we've talked about that. We understand that. it's God makes a covenant. He cuts a covenant. There's a time of relative uh, peace and faithfulness. And then what happens? Man rejects God, rejects the covenant, apostatizes, and is ultimately cut off. And we, see, we, we talked about that last week in the Restoration Covenant. What happens? The kings of Israel apostatize. They reject God. And God ultimately allows Nebuchadnezzar or uses Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to destroy the first temple, decimate Israel and Jerusalem where it's just a barren wasteland for 50 years. That is the judgment of God for their disobedience. So this is the pattern we see over and again. And that brings us, of course, to the figure that fulfills the law of God and the figure that fulfills the three offices that are prophesied in the Old Testament. So do you remember we talked about the three offices of the Messiah? Do you remember what those are? Prophet, priest, king. Very good. Prophet, priest, and king. That is to say, the uh, six covenants in the Old Testament fit within this model of prophet, priest, or king. So Abraham is, uh, or excuse me, not Abraham. It, you can you order it differently. But what you have is Adam and Moses. As, uh, I think it's Adam and Moses. Well, we'll just do the first three. But Adam is the priest. Noah is the king. Noah. And then Abraham is the priest. Oh, sorry. I have it wrong. Um, prophet, sorry. Yeah. And the idea is that as the covenants go on, they fit these various offices. And in fact, what we see, like when we get to David, is you have an individual who's not only a king, but also a prophet. And so you start to see the combination of these offices. But what the narrative is pointing to is that where is the one who will operate in all three offices? Where is this one who will not only be the perfect king, but also the great high priest and the authoritative word of God? Where will that figure be? And that's, of course, what Christ is proclaimed to be. That's what the first century church was proclaiming. This is, in fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, 
read the book of Hebrews with this, with the three offices of God in mind, and it just jumps off the page. Because that is what the author of Hebrews, I won't say Paul, I'm not one of those guys. Uh, the author of Hebrews is expressly, communicate, expressly communicating to the Hebrews, here is your Messiah. Here is your one who is fulfilling these three offices. So prophet, priest, and king. So we're going to take some time and look at precisely how Christ comes on the scene and shows that he is in fact the perfect prophet, the high priest, and the king of all creation. So we're going to start in uh, actually Hebrews chapter 3, looking at the office of prophet. So Hebrews 3, verses 3 through 6. This is in regard to Christ being the greater Moses, or the greater prophet. For Jesus has been counted worthy for more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For everyone, excuse me, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house, in all God's house, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So there, Moses is seen as the uh, builder of the house in the sense of the old covenant people, that is the Jews, Israelites. But it's, it's shown that God, in fact, is the one who is above the builder of the house. And it's actually been God all along and Christ who built Moses. So, or rather the, you know, the, the Mosaic Covenant. So here we see that Christ is expressly uh, stated as being greater than Moses. So here the author of Hebrews is saying, here's the greater Moses. Here's the one that Moses said, one after me will come who is greater than I. This is the one. He's pointing to Christ as the Messiah. So now Christ not only operates as the prophet, uh, in the office of prophet, but of course, what do we know about Christ? He is the Word made flesh. We read this in, in the Gospel of John. Christ himself is the Word of God. He's the Word made flesh. So he, every word that he speaks is the authority of God. It is prophecy. So in that way, not only does he fulfill the office of prophet, but he is the perfect prophet. Every word that he speaks is the Word of God. Um, yeah. Secondly, the order of priests. Now, this one is a little more interesting because he is, that is Christ, is connected with an Old Testament figure that we really know very little about and really doesn't have anything to do with uh, the Mosaic Covenant or the Davidic Covenant or anything like that. And that is... Christ is connected with the priestly order of Melchizedek. Now the significance of that, why is Christ said to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? And that's from, uh, again, Hebrews 6, 
verse 19. I'll read this passage. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. So what do we hear about Melchizedek? I'm going to write this down because it's really hard to spell. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yeah. That's a serious pronunciation. Melchizedek. Okay, I would not recommend naming your son Melchizedek. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have more than ten before we get there. Uh, so, why is Christ identified with this figure. So Melchizedek is actually a the first time in scripture in which we find a figure who's operating in two offices. And that is king, he's the king of Salem and priest. So now Christ is saying uh, the author is saying Christ is operating in the order of this one who is now had held the offices of king and priest. Secondly, very importantly, what we read is that Melchizedek was the one that Abraham went to and was blessed by. Now, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, when you are blessed by someone, that implies that they are greater than you. If you're blessed by someone in the Old Testament, it implies they're greater than you. So, if Abraham, the father of the nations, the father of all Israel, is being blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek is in a place above Abraham. So Christ is not a priest in the order of Aaron or in the order of Moses. He's in the order of the one who's greater than those, Aaron and Moses. He's even greater than Abraham. He's in the order of Melchizedek. So this goes to that notion of Christ is the high priest that is above all of Israel and all of Jeru- all of uh, the Hebrews. This is why he can say, "Before, before um, Abraham, I was." The the uh, his his affirmation that he is in fact Yahweh uh, when he's before the um, temple. That is because he is in fact operating in this office as priest, and, or as rather as high priest, and as king. The other interesting thing is the author explains that the name Melchizedek, king of Salem, what exactly that means. It's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So here, Christ is not only operating as the great high priest under Melchizedek, but he's also taking upon himself the titles that are attributed to Melchizedek's name. That is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So in that sentence there, we nearly have the full three offices of God laid out. All right. Continuing on. All right, I'm going to read uh, 
the passage immediately after that, uh, Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints man in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There we see the conclusion of this, that not only is the one who's operating in the order of Melchizedek as the righteous king, as the king of peace, as the great high priest, offers himself as the atoning sacrifice. So the sacrificial atonement, the um, sin offering, is no longer the, the blood of animals and bulls and goats, but now it's the figure himself offers his own body and his own blood. So this goes back to, uh, we've talked about um, Anselm's satisfaction theory, and how can... Uh, God's judgment, how can God's wrath be satisfied? Well, it requires God himself to satisfy himself. God alone is the one, the only one who can satisfy his own requirements, but God did not owe himself anything. Man owes God. So what does Christ come and do? He becomes man. So as a man, he takes on these offices and therefore is able to pay for the sins of all mankind, while at the same time satisfying God. And this is how he does that, by operating as the perfect king and the great high priest, and as the word of God. So the atonement offered by the Son is perfect and lasting. That's the important part. In the Old Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament, all the Atoning sacrifices that were offered were not lasting. They were simply delaying the inevitable. They were delaying the wrath of God. The wrath of God was never actually being satisfied. What we have now is the atonement that satisfies God's judgment. Completely. Alright, now finally, we come to the office of king, and that is Christ is seen as the greater David. Greater David. Matthew in Matthew 22 verses 41 through 44 says this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?" They said to him, "The son of David." And he said to them, "How is it then that David, in spirit, calls him?" Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here, David is prophesying that in fact, one of his descendants is his Lord. So they're asking the question rightly, Who is the Messiah? Isn't he the son of David? Yes, he is the son of David. And then Christ says to them, How then is it that he says, how is it that he calls him Lord? So here's the notion. 
the what Christ is claiming to be here now is just like he did with the order of Melchizedek. He precedes Abraham. He precedes David. Even though he is from the line of David, he's incarnated through the line of David, he's actually before David. So he is above David. If David is calling him Lord, again, that idea, David is implying he is underneath, he is below, he is subservient to this one that he is calling Lord. So Christ, in no uncertain terms, is claiming to be David's Lord here. This is why they, you know, the, the next verse, it says, they basically stopped asking questions. Because it was like, we all want to see where this goes. Right? They, they got it. They understood it. Um, to make it even more clear, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Now, here's an interesting uh, note. Both, so you have the tribe of Judah... Um, David is, of course, in the tribe of Judah. And from David, I don't remember which son, um, well, it must be Solomon, uh, that Joseph, which isn't Jesus' biological father, obviously, but um, Joseph is in the line of David as well as Mary. So here's the interesting thing. Mary uh, descends from uh, Nathan, but they are both in direct lineage from Mary. So Jesus, for all intents and purposes, is the king on both sides. And to, to geek out a little bit, this is precisely what Tolkien mirrors in the character of Aragorn. Aragorn is seen as being this kingly figure who descends from the line of kings from both sides. So Jesus descends from David, the greatest king in the Old Testament, from both of his parents. Now, obviously, we know that he's only biologically, we would, we're the only ones who make that category now in our modern era. He's biologically related to Mary, but he's under, given Old Testament law, while he's a child, he's circumcised and under his father, Joseph. So by virtue of that, he's the son of the one who would have been the king. And in fact, if they were following the monarchy, if the line of David had been secured, there are many theologians who concluded that Joseph should have been the king. He would have actually been, instead of Herod the Great or whoever was actually operating at that time, as the king. Joseph was the one who should have actually been king. So within his meager, small world, or a small family rather, is actually the shadows and the, the roots of royalty. So Christ, though he's born into a meager situation, and he's born in a stable, a lowly state, there is the underpinnings, the foundation, that even though this family has the appearance and in, in practicality is lowly, they are in fact royalty. So he's not born to a simply a peasant family. He is born into a royal line. And that's important because if he's not actually of the line of David, then the promises that are given to David, the promises that are given to Abraham, aren't actually fulfilled. So he is in the line of David. And obviously we know that Christ 
operates in the office of king far greater than David did. In Israel, or rather in the Old Testament, when David was on the throne, when David was ruling, and consequently his son Solomon, those were, those were regarded as the, the golden age of Israel. That is when Israel was at its peak. The people of God were the most powerful, the most influential, the most wealthy, and consequently the most blessed, the closest to God. They were in relationship with God as near as they can be when David was on the throne. So if Christ is seen as the new David, as the greater David, it implies now that that relationship, when they were close to God under David, now how much more are we closer to God with Christ, the greater David? So now we, we can see, we're starting to see the full picture here, that as we have a perfect king that is greater than David, and as that king is on the throne, we cannot be defeated. We cannot be separated from the presence of God. We have the great high priest who's offered the atonement for our sins. That sacrifice is lasting forever and it cannot be undone. And then we have the very word of God himself who speaks to us and gives us a new law and exactly what God has in store for us, what God would command for us. So, it, so what is being brought to mind here is that the people of God have been provided for in every need. Every need that Israel had in the Old Testament has been met in Christ. So we have been blessed beyond all measure. So what is the state of the kingdom now? Now that we are in Christ. The atonement has been offered. Christ has ascended and seated at the right hand of God. What is the state of the kingdom of God now? Well, of course, Christ is seated. That is, the work of the atonement is accomplished. In Philippians chapter 2, we read this. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in, fo in human form, he humbled himself and be became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the state of the kingdom now. Christ is seated on the throne, he is ruling and reigning, and now he has taken back the rule of this world from Satan. So incidentally, we learned in the uh, Edenic Covenant, or the Edenic Covenant, that Adam was the ruler of all creation. He was the one who essentially owned the earth. God gave him all of creation and said, tend it and steward it. When he sinned, he, he forfeited that right and gave it to the serpent. He gave it to Satan. So Satan lied and stole the authority over the earth from Adam. And what do we have in Christ? We have the second Adam, the new Adam, who then takes that authority back. So now 
Christ is the one to whom every knee will bow, not only on earth, but under the earth. That phrase, under the earth, is beginning to the demons and the serpent. Say, all creation will bow before this one. So Christ now has taken back the keys from Satan. Continuing on, uh, I want to read Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, if you take certain eschatological points of view, we would say, certain people would say, this hasn't happened yet. But under our understanding of covenant theology, and if you understand that the looking at the destruction of Jerusalem the first time in 586, and then the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, what you find is that, again, they fit the pattern. Why was Jerusalem destroyed the first time? Rejection of God. They rejected Yahweh. They rejected the law of God. Why was Israel destroyed the second time? The same reason, except they're not rejecting the Father. Now they're rejecting the Son. So Israel, or rather the Jews in Jerusalem, said, we have no king but Caesar. Now they're rejecting even their own kings. Herod. They have apostatized completely. They've rejected the Messiah as their king. And they said, we are under the rule of Gentiles only. We're under the heathen kings of the earth. Because of that rejection and their continual rejection of Christ's church going forward, that is what ultimately leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and the final judgment, the second destruction of the temple, which mirrors the first. So what you have there is... Uh, the judgment of Israel is repeated. And the second time, it's referred to as the wrath of the Lamb. And this is actually a phrase that you find, uh, I think it's in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. The wrath of the Lamb. That is the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, is the one who then executes judgment on Israel for their rejection of him and his church just as Yahweh had executed judgment on Jerusalem because of their rejection for him and his law. So, the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament, um, ends at the destruction of Jerusalem. And that is when the uh, whole Old Testament world, the Old Testament mode of operation, is brought to an end. And that is when, as we read, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And after that, now we are in the period where Christ now is ruling and reigning for forever. So we now live in the era where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has the keys of death and Hades. He's ruling and reigning over all creation. The Old Testament world, that is the Israelite world, has been done away with. And now, what has he done? He has created and he is building a new kingdom. And that is part of our work. That's what we're called into. Our great commission, we have not only the cultural mandate, which is to go and to fill the earth, 
but we have been commissioned by Christ to do what? Go in and preach the gospel. Build my kingdom. Build the kingdom of Christ. Not the kingdom of the Old Testament, but the kingdom of Christ. Amen? Amen. Good. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.